want to talk about the question that was sent in about mother-daughter relationships actually goes to um, parent and child relationships in general. And as usual, I'm always going to talk about both the psychology, because we came here to learn things as a soul, and the spirituality of it, because we came here to evolve as a soul. You can't do just psychology, in my opinion, because you're limiting looking at yourself from the big picture, and you can't just do spirituality because then you're dodging, spiritually bypassing the stuff that you were taught to learn by having the parents that you have. So parent-child relationships are huge. And a parent could mean a caregiver. If you are raised by a grandmother, an aunt, an older brother, depending on your circumstances, whoever your primary caregiver is, and by the way, sometimes this is a daycare worker or workers. And all early childhood experiences form what we call attachment styles. I mean, in other words, you're taught how to relate to other people. You're taught to trust them or not trust them. You're taught that people come and people go or people stay. One of the things that children learn is what's called object permanence, or perhaps they don't learn this. And object permanence is when the baby's brain gets a little bit more developed and it actually starts at very, very young age, pre-verbal, pre-toddler that a baby begins to understand that when something disappears, it still exists. In other words, when mom or dad goes out the door to work, they still exist and they'll come back. However, sometimes in broken families or in a family where you have an alcoholic or addictive parent or parents, the child learns that people can stay and yet they go because when they're drunk they're not the same person and yet the child is taught to accept that behavior as normal meaning when they grow up they will be around people who act crazy go crazy or are addicts in some way and talk themselves into that this is normal and this is okay they won't see anything wrong in that behavior if a child has lots of different daycare workers, not someone permanent for a number of years, they will not learn to count on someone being in their life and staying with them for long periods of time. And therefore, there are theories about this in early childhood education. My sister was a expert in this arena. That was her specialty. <clears throat> she was actually on Ted Koppel's world solutions regarding early childhood education, that when child children don't learn about object permanence, it's much easier for them to create violence against someone else or to steal or to abuse or um, disregard, ghost, uh, come and go, because what they were taught is that people come and go. They're disposable. They never learned object permanence. There's all kinds of attachment styles, and you can look them up on Google and read about them. 
And why is this important about object permanence and attachment styles? <laughs> because if you're not happy with your relationships with people, or perhaps you're not even happy with your relationship with yourself, in order to correct something, first we have to know what we're doing in order to make different choices. We have to have some knowledge of that. For example, if you ever hire a coach for tennis or ice skating or driving, anything, the coach will first point out what you are doing and maybe even why you might be doing it and then point out how to do it different. And when you start to do it different, you feel pretty awkward and it maybe even feels wrong at first because your muscles and your brain and your balance point, everything is attuned to your wrong way of doing things. Not everybody who looks at attachment styles has to look at this because of trauma. Sometimes you look at your parents and you see they're shopaholics or you see they are very um, kind of fake. They're very fun and great with everybody, but then at home with their kids, they're not the same people. Or you don't like the way they treat you, even though it wasn't abusive. You don't feel it was actually perhaps the best way now that you've learned more about psychology or child rearing, etc. So you don't need the excuse or the reason of childhood trauma to look into this material. What you need is a dissatisfaction with your own current relationships. So if you, for example, drink a lot and party a lot and people uh, tell you you're a show-off and how you always love to be in front of the camera or they tell you, you know, how entertaining you are or they tell you how peaceful and quiet you are and inside you're not, for example, and you're really sick of being seen a certain way or perceived a certain way or you notice that you're hiding a lot of aspects of yourself and only showing certain aspects of yourself to the public. And very often when you do that, your real self or the dark side of yourself maybe comes out in the really close relationships, intimate relationships. Like Sometimes uh, I've met people and they look just so happy and bright and cheerful and then it turns out they're very emotionally abusive to their mate. That's where they take their dark side out on and they're with a mate who puts up with it. So if you are happy with how you are socially and how you're raising your kids and your kids are happy with you, you're not going to be interested in this material. <clears throat> just like if someone's happy with their weight or their physique, why are they going to look into health issues and uh, workout structures? Most humans don't look to improve unless something sucks. There are some people out there, they tend to be a minority, who are always curious about what else is there? Like how else could this be? They're kind of like pioneers, thinkers, philosophers, uh, inventors, entrepreneurs, etc. So if you are one of these people who is not happy with how you are doing in life interpersonally, 
you want to look into attachment styles. And in order to understand attachment styles, you're going to have to go back and look at your childhood. And you can't always get a good history from parents. Sometimes you need to talk to brothers and sisters. Sometimes you need to look at brothers, sisters, cousins, aunts, uncles to find out what was really going on in your family because a lot of families whitewash um, their history, their culture. And it's so interesting you use that word whitewash, like white people are very, very much involved with presenting <laughs> at least white non-ethnics, meaning uh, Christian, Protestant, Lutheran, those types. Ethnic whites, quite different. But that's another subject. So you want to find out how you were raised to think and behave, and even how you were raised to feel, like boys don't cry or big girls don't cry. You were taught how to feel. Be grateful, give to the Lord, always be thankful. And you were taught to do that, whether you feel it or not, whether you believe in the Lord or some version of that or not. What's particularly rough is if you have a parent that is publicly very acceptable, like maybe they're very... Um, successful in business and they make a lot of money and they're like, ta-da, with everyone in their life at the party. And therefore, your version of them as a mother, that maybe they're narcissistic, not narcissistic personality disorder, that that is a whole other subject, Uh, but people can have narcissistic tendencies. But the world sees them as wonderful and fun and fun-loving and amazing, and they remember everybody's name, and they're a great host, they're a great hostess, they're strong in their church, you know, etc. But your experience of, of a parent is that they're pretty awful and very self-involved and don't know you at all and weren't really involved with your childhood, except when there were people around and they were showing off. This causes a lot of pain for the person who wants to move forward because there's no way they're going to get support from the public that there's anything wrong with a parent that is very popular or narcissistic or a giant bullshitter or gaslighter or presenter, etc. Or their church loves them, etc. And it does mean that along with studying material, you're going to have to find a support group and or a support person, a therapist, a healer, a teacher, you cannot start to break generational dysfunction without help. There's just no way. It's too big of a deal to do that. When we lived as a tribe, or even in small villages where we kind of knew each other, very often there was a men's council, women's lodge, there was a shaman, a medicine person. There were resources there. But in modern day, you got to find those resources and use them and do the work. How you are able or not able to be authentic with other people not only starts with childhood, It starts with 
first discovering what you were taught to believe about yourself. And then you've got to find out what's really true about yourself. That if you had a parent that told you're stupid or that you're sexy or you're brave or that you're shy, and are you? Why were they defining who you were for you instead of helping you find out who you actually are? So there's a lot of work to dig up before you can be an authentic person. A lot of people tell me how authentic and honest they are and they know who they are, but what they're being is not their parents. (laughs) My parents shop retail, so I don't. My parents hate thrift stores, so I shop at thrift stores. My parents are in the church, so I hate the church. My parents um, get in each other's business, so I never talk to anybody about my business or their business. And it's just not being what my parents are as a way of defining yourself. And that is still in the highly dysfunctional realm of choices when it comes to recovery. It is a pretty important journey to take to find out who you are, unless you had amazing parents, which most people haven't had. A lot of people don't know who they are. And in the process of finding out who you really are, you now become a resource for your children, your grandchildren, your neighbor's children, children you maybe meet if you work with kids etc. You become a resource for other adults around you when you can help them figure out who they really are because you are modeling for them what that journey looks like and that you were willing to go through a period of kind of confusion and disruption and not knowing. And also when you become different than who you were brought up to be, it's definitely going to disrupt the family system. And it's going to take people a while to readjust. Some will readjust, some will not. Some will oust you from the family. Some will go, thank God you're taking on this journey because I have been too and I've been so secretive about it, but now I feel like I'm an ally. Some people will transition smoothly. It's very unpredictable. And again, it is disruptive. So it's not something that you can really do by yourself. And reading and learning about it is actually a part of therapy. We call it psychoeducation. And it's so interesting because people will study astrology and Ayurvedic medicine and all this other stuff, but they won't study psychology. And it's almost like If I had, um, I kept cutting myself with a razor blade, arms or legs, a lot of teenagers do this, especially nowadays. And instead of addressing that, I healed my chakras and I did past life regressions and I uh, ate organic and all of those things are great. And they may function for many years, maybe even as decades, as a, I want to say, distraction or coping mechanism for the cutting. But one day, you're going to have to address the cutting. You're going to have to look at it. 
And maybe you're doing all those things to get strong enough and stable enough so one day you can address the cutting. That's fine. That's absolutely fine. But doing all of those things instead of addressing the cutting at some point means that it's like you're living with a a low-grade infection in your system or a tooth abscess, and it will drain your immune system. It will wear you out. It will mean that you are split, meaning that part of you is busy being as authentic as you can, and another part of you is keeping the basement door where the dirty, rotting, molding box called I was cutting myself is locked up. So you can never quite be 100%. If you have a real diagnosed mental illness, you might actually live like that with kind of a split. Like this is me handling my depression. This is me handling my anxiety and fear. And this is me being able to be as authentic as I can given that a lot of my energy is going towards handling the mental illness. And that might be as good as it gets in this lifetime, and there's nothing wrong with that. So there's no finish line, there's no prize, there's no medal for this work you do. What it's about is your desire to see and go questing for a better quality of life. Now, understand that if you come from a family that really worships the externals, you got a degree, you made money, you scored a good-looking husband or wife, you have the right car, you escaped the ghetto, you're no longer a farmer's daughter or son, etc., there's a really good chance that you will continue to use people as badges of achievement, like my husband or my wife helps define who I am. My church and my role in my church helps to define who I am. And this might be a healthy thing, but it also might be an unhealthy thing. It comes back down to it's not what you do for recovery work, it's how you do it. Are you doing it to add to your ego and look more powerful than ever and tell someone that you think is powerful and amazing and can keep you out of trouble and help you lose weight or help you find God or uh, help you deal with your mother or your husband or your father? And so you're kind of sucking up to them, trying to be what they, what you think they're trying to tell you to be in order to succeed, be happier, or win praise from what we might call a high-value target. So again, we're looking at how you take on your recovery work. If you haven't looked at your childhood and your attachment styles and what you were taught to believe, you might be making all the right motions for all the wrong reasons. This is how people get into cults, by the way. People who join cults are people who are deeply concerned about the well-being of the planet, of the human race. There, Yes, there are some power cults out there, racist cults. We can look at Hitler's youth and 
all of the brown shirts and all the people he organized. You can look at the people organizing around Trump, QAnon, and MAGA, and all those people who say, you know, if we were in charge, the country would be running better. That is a different story. Those are different kinds of cults compared to cults that say, if I do everything this cult leader tells me, I'll be a better person. I'll be able to help more people. I'll have more power to change the world for the better. Which, yes, a lot of the Trump cults do say the same thing. And uh, we then we have to go a little deeper and look at what's being taught, right? So recovery work can fall into that cult-like behavior. Some people accuse AA of being cult-like. And in reality... You can turn anything into a cult. There's people who study with my teacher that have tried to turn him into a cult leader, and they paid for it dearly, and he's not a cult leader. There's no power structure that you can join and move up in the ranks. There's no temple. There's no do this, this, and this, and you're more powerful. But some people still have claimed that that is going on. There are some people who come to Life Path Healings and treat it in a cult manner. Like, I did what you told me. Now what? It's like, well, I didn't tell you to do something for you to do the next thing. Did you try, I made a suggestion you try something and see what you learned. And did it work for you or did it or did it not? Right? So... Yes, cult leaders can victimize people, but also we want to look at who gets victimized. Are they people that have attachment issues from childhood, that have been brought up naive, idealistic, defenseless? No victim blaming is meant to be going on here or victim shaming. It's What I'm saying is all of this material is very complex. And that's one of the reasons you'll see that I don't teach a methodology. My teacher does not teach a method. I'm very leery of methods because what methods say is I have the way for lots of people. And as long as you understand that's what they're really saying instead of they're saying my method works for everybody. That's pretty much what you hear in the New Age culture. Do this and you'll get this. Do this and you'll get this. They don't say, look, this works for a certain type of person. This works for a certain type of history, etc. So looking at attachment styles and psychoeducation and beginning to uncover what you were taught to believe. And why are you rebelling against it? Perhaps what you were taught to believe, it turns out you like being part of the church and you like buying a lot of stuff and you like having money and maybe instead you were influenced by the culture of your school or your college or social media where it's not okay to be privileged it's not okay to have money it's not okay to be happy but digging into your childhood first what were you taught and what were you taught to feel or not feel? What were you taught to think? How were you taught to behave? Then, and only then, can you start looking at trying out different choices. 
based on reading or working with someone. Um, the holistic psychologist has a book called How to Do the Work. But guess what? You got to actually do the work. And she has a video on YouTube for each chapter. And yet I know people who bought the book and it's like a coffee table book. And that's like I had a neighbor who always wanted to go running with me and about every two weeks she'd come over and show me her new jogging outfit and now this was the outfit that was going to get her running. Well, she never went running with me, but she had a lot of jogging outfits. So buying the books, reading about stuff, and listening to podcasts is like reading the menu at a restaurant and then leaving and thinking you've eaten a meal. You have not. If you have a parent that is very successful publicly and they're really crappy as a parent, that's going to be a really hard road to travel. Not impossible. My mother was an absolutely brilliant therapist, amazing and very charismatic and smart as hell and turned out extremely psychic, though we didn't call it that and she didn't really acknowledge that. But she was a pretty lousy mom. And it took me a very long time to get mad at her because she had so many good qualities. How could I be mad at her? That just seems so um, what's the word? Non-accepting, so limiting, so low of me. I mean, she did all this amazing work and couldn't be perfect in every area. But in order for me to heal, I had to allow myself to get mad and sad and angry about the things that were done to me. Inadvertently, she didn't know any better. Life circumstances happen. And only then could I begin to figure out what kind of self-care I needed and how to make different choices than what I was taught. If you look at someone like Martin Luther King's kids... How hard is that for them to do recovery work? I mean, their dad was a hero. And any therapy or recovery work they have to do, it's going to have to be highly confidential and very secretive so as not to ruin his legacy. There were books written 10, 20 years ago about some of the kids of very famous actresses who seem so wonderful, and it turns out they're monsters in the home. So it's a special case if you have a, quote, successful parent, a darling parent, and you are, you need to bust that bubble, at least for yourself, that they are not that wonderful behind the scenes. What's even harder, um, I had a friend who, her parents were Nazis from Germany, they immigrated here, and they used to dress up in their uniforms and rape her. They raped her before she could talk, and they raped her until she could talk, and then they stopped, and they also forced her to sexually abuse her younger sister. And they stopped raping her when she could talk, because then she could turn them in at some point. Really hard material to heal. Plus, the younger sister had no memory of sexual abuse. It just buried so deeply. Can you imagine the horror of trying to come to grips with that, to work on that, when it all happened pre-verbally, so there's really no words attached to the experiences. And no one in the family agrees with her story. No one. 
I'm bringing this up to say it is really difficult, even if it's not as dramatic as this. It is extremely difficult to be courageous enough to go after your story of what happened to you. Very often a parent will abuse one child and not the others or rape one child and not the others. And that's a horror because you don't even believe yourself then because no one else in the family will cooperate. And maybe you're making it up. Maybe you're being overdramatic. Maybe it wasn't that bad. I would say also that there are plenty of people who don't live this kind of life of introspection and examination and growth. There's a lot of people who just, they're very normal, but they don't come to see people like me and they don't listen to podcasts like this and they don't study psychology and they're well within the range of what we could call normal dysfunction. They drink, but they don't drink and crash cars or drink and beat each other up, etc. And maybe drinking as an issue doesn't really show up until decades later, like 60s or 70s, when the body starts to break down and then all the dysfunction is kind of forced to the surface, finally. <laughs> so I'm not telling everybody to take this kind of journey. What I'm saying is, if you're not happy and you haven't been able to get happy with shopping eating, being sexually active, presenting on social media, winning at your job, getting awards, getting recognition, being the star of your social media group, the star of your neighborhood group, and there's still stuff going on, then you've got two choices, medication or start to work on yourself. Can you start doing this work simply with meditation? First of all, I'd say you can't do this work without having a spiritual practice. Uh, you can, but it will be very limited, in my opinion, because what you'll be missing is being able to shift the energy that you were born into in your family culture. So meditation, but not meditation to feel good or go to your special place or meditation to astral project or meditation to heal the two hemispheres of your brain, etc. Those are all good things. That's different. But silent meditation to me is the only tool I know that allows us to be energetically shifted on the level of our cells, of the atoms, the protons, neutrons, and electrons of those atoms get shifted by a field larger than ourselves. Whether you believe in God or quantum physics, I don't care. Either one, there's enough evidence about quantum medicine and energy shifts, and I can refer you to a bunch of books if you're interested. Get a hold of me do some reading, but again, it'll be information, not a practice. So along with this, um, there are a number of people who study with my teacher who probably would have been institutionalized. Um, 
and definitely have mental illnesses of some sort, like pretty severe that we all noticed it. Um, some were on medication and got off. Some refused to get on medication and were just kind of a mess. And through working with him and this kind of meditation where we allow spirit to come in and work with us, we don't try to be quiet. We don't try to feel calm and good and and peaceful and sweet and giving and serenity. No, we just tell spirit, heal me. You know, give me what I need to heal. And I have seen those people change and get more balanced and more functional than I've seen anywhere else. I've also seen people get to the same results with taking uh, psychedelics, uh, maybe forever. For some reason, psychedelics seem to work with some people, especially those who have an ego about taking prescription medication versus psychedelics. And so they go on psychedelics for most of their life, the rest of their life. And that balances them out. Okay, that's good. In other words, go as deep as you want to go. And what is that based on? I would say it's based on your level of contentment and joy, serenity, your ability to be very resilient. You're getting very comfortable with functioning in this world, no matter how different you are. That will determine how deep you want to go. This is not about winning medals from Jesus or becoming a recognized psychic healer or clairvoyant or anything else. I know a lot of people with a lot of psychic gifts and their personal lives are a disaster. I personally don't promote that kind of lifestyle where you have your gift and you're spiritual and in the meantime you're living with a narcissist or uh, you're living uh, as a partial drunk or uh, you have a really crappy relationship with your significant other. To me, that's a hard choice and you're welcome to make it, but I won't support that. It doesn't go with my integrity unless someone says to me, I'm very happy feeling isolated alone with my boyfriend or girlfriend and I can boss them around. They'll do whatever I want and they never challenge me. And it's kind of like having a dog, a good dog, and that makes me happy. Okay, um, I can work with that to some degree. <laughs> but at some point, there's going to be a clash because that choice doesn't go with authenticity. Everything that is given to you as a tool, the big question will be how you do the work, not what you do, but how you do it. And I addressed that before talking about doing things by rote and doing things sacredly. And yes, doing some things by rote, like I'm going to go to the gym by rote. That's a habit. I'm going to go no matter how I feel, I'm going to go. And some days I can turn it into sacred and some days not. When working on the self and trying to get more to the authentic self and your true feelings, I would say, though, you're looking at the sacred. When you're meditating, it may start off by rote, like I'm getting up at 6 o'clock, goddammit, I'm going to meditate because if I don't do it now, I'll never do it. And it might start off by rote and then it moves into the sacred. But if it moves back into the by rote, like 
Oh yeah, I get up at six, I meditate. Eh, I'd say change it up, switch it up. Just like sex with your partner over a long period of time can get dull and boring unless you change it up and go deeper and make it different. Just like if you eat the same things over and over, your body gets too acclimated and starts to shut down and doesn't work very well because you have to change up your diet. So make sure that you go between the sacred and rote and you're resilient between those two choices. I have a lot to say about the family of origin work, but there's just so much you can learn on your own. Adult Children of Alcoholics has some has the big red book, which is great. Codependence Anonymous, uh, the book by Melody Beattie, B-E-A-T-T-I-E, great book to read. Codependent No More, brilliant, brilliant book to read about what dysfunctionalism looks like at every stage of development and how it shows up as an adult. And it's a brilliant book that you can use to start reshaping your life. And you can use all of this self-education by bringing it into therapy sessions or bringing it into sessions with whomever you're working with. So if somebody works with me, I'm, you know, I'm always asking them, what did you do? What did you learn? Otherwise, why are you talking to me? You know, I'm just going to give you advice. And then after two years, you're not much different. And you're going to trash me, which you should, because you're paying all this money and there's not much changing. You, you know a lot more. You feel like a cool person because, oh, you're working with like someone who's, you know, an energy master or something, uh, you think, compared to, say, a regular therapist. So um, see how far you can go educating yourself and then bring that into whomever you're working with. And if something doesn't work for you, try something else. There's not just one answer. Now you need to be careful because if you say nothing works for you, and then you might get questioned as to, well, what have you actually tried and how long have you tried it for? Well, if somebody comes to me and says, yeah, I went to five meetings, great. What'd you learn? Oh, I learned a lot. Well, what'd you learn? Did you take notes? No, they didn't. What did they learn? They can't tell me. Did you talk? No. Did you get a buddy? No. Did you read any literature? No. So in other words, you went to the meetings because I told you it would be a good idea. That is acting like a cult member. That is being codependent, a people pleaser. And we know that Codependents do terrible in therapy for that very reason. They will people-please their therapist forever, for a long, long time. And people do that with me as well, even more so because, oh, I'm not just a crappy therapist. I'm a clairvoyant. I'm an energy healer. I have this great teacher, you know, who channels Wang, Lo, Sin, Si. So if they do what I tell them, they're going to get brownie points and be all better. No, you have to do it for yourself and go through the discomfort of trying some new things like correcting your tennis stroke in order to find out if it's working for you or not. And if it's working, 
it means you're going to go through some disruption and transition and it will be uncomfortable and you might cry on and off for a while and you don't even know why even though your life is great you might get mad at people you might get a short temper you got mad at yourself you might lose your appetite you might uh, increase your appetite you might start drinking even more you might start cutting yourself you know all the something and many things are going to change when you really start to do some work on yourself so be prepared for that. And a really gentle way to start is reading and going to 12-step meetings and speaking or working with a therapist or someone like me in order to see if this is something you really want to take on. A lot of people start doing private work with me to find out they don't want to do private work. They're having a lot of fun. Their life is working. They just want attention. And as much as I don't mind giving people attention, I, as long as they're really clear, like, yeah, I want to come see you and I want you to make me feel good and give me attention, okay, I'll do that. But if you're coming under the pretense that you're doing some work, I'm going to send you away because that doesn't fit my integrity. It might fit your integrity, but it doesn't fit mine. I want to talk a little bit about sexuality. Um, sexuality, sexual energy is just like you have a positive and negative on a battery and we have yin and yang and we have the flow of intake and output so sexual energy is absolutely part of spiritual energy and if you are shut down sexually, meaning uh, you've been raped, traumatized, abused, or you've never had a good orgasm, or you have a lot of shame and guilt around sex, it does block your flow with spirit. So it is an, an important area to cultivate. And a lot of times, uh, one of the reasons they have with therapists um, written in, teach therapist ethics, and there's laws, at least in California, that you can't go out with your therapist if you've been a client for like two years. They have that for a lot of professionals because a lot of people fall in love with the people helping them. They fall in love with them because they're getting help. And then, especially if they've been abused sexually or just traumatized sexually, they will mistake that great love they feel for someone who's helping them as sex. Because when they were a little kid, when they were loved, they had a penis or fingers or something put inside of them. And now it's hooked up in their brain that anytime I feel a deep love for somebody, it has something to do with my genitals. Giving my genitals away, allowing my genitals to be used, or using my genitals to seal the deal with someone else. Like if I let grandpa uh, have his way with me, he will love me more, and then I can sleep in bed with him. So now every person I meet, I think I'm sexually attracted to them. I may even wonder if I'm gay sometimes, because if a woman's helping me, I'll even do that with a woman, even though I've had no previous uh, vibe or pull towards being gay. So what do we do with sexual energy? Well very hard if not impossible to do tantric work and what tantric work is is bringing someone to orgasm or as close to orgasm as you can get and this doesn't mean touching them sexually at all and sometimes it does mean touching them sexually 
If you go to the temples in the east, you'll see around the thresholds all the gods and goddesses fornicating in all these different positions. And Westerners like find this absolutely disgusting and horrifying. That you know, what their their church has something to do with you know the F word. Ugh. But it's an understanding of cultivating energy, and part of the sacred path is this deep exchange of energy. So tantric work. In the East, there is no stigma in actually having sex, and there is no concept that you fall in love with your tantric worker. You know it's about energy. It's not about love. Here, tantric workers who have done anything that looks slightly sexual in order to bring someone to orgasm have been arrested for rape and prostitution. So it's nigh impossible to find a tantric worker anymore. However, a person can be brought to orgasm by staring at them, by touching their elbow with one finger. My mentor and I did a lot of tantric work. She was a shaman in her own right before she met my teacher. Fabulous energy worker. I'm not gay. She's not gay. I'm not even bi. And we would bring each other to orgasm because our energy field was open and available for that level of experience, but there was nothing that looked sexual at all. Lady Gaga talks about that she orgasms in meditation, and a number of people who work with my teacher have that capability, that freedom, that trust in spirit, the trust in their own body to allow that to happen. Now, why is this so important? Because after orgasm, every energy channel in the body is completely open, and we both flush things out at that point and we can be healed on a level much deeper than with normal energy work. So with energy work, people, a healer, a teacher can only go as deep as the person is capable of receiving at the time. So sometimes if somebody says, oh, that's a powerful energy worker, well, for that person it is because they can receive it. Somebody else may go to that energy worker and go, I don't really feel very much. Well, they, maybe they don't feel energy. Maybe they're afraid of feeling that amount of energy from a woman because their mother was a bitch and they haven't done childhood work. So a woman healer is just not going to be allowed in. It's just, and it's all unconscious. This is not conscious stuff. Let's say that you don't have orgasm in meditation. And let's say uh, if someone touches your elbow or your fingertip, you don't have an orgasm. And in fact, if you start to feel sexual, you freak out and you shut it down. So what can you do? You can look up tantric practices and try them. Look up sexual tantric practices and try them. There are different kinds of meditations and breathings and postures, etc. You can masturbate. And after your orgasm and masturbation, sit up and meditate immediately. One of the reasons you see people smoke after sex or drink or get up, turn on the TV or go to the bathroom or something is they can't handle the openness that occurs after sex. It's too vulnerable for them. That energy flowing in all those ways feels emotionally vulnerable and they shut it down. If you're feeling sexual energy with a healer or you think you're in love with them, 
bring it up. You got to bring it up. If they're a good healer, if they've been trained, if they're really have their own spiritual practice and they're comfortable with energy, they'll be able to handle the conversation. If they can't handle the conversation, that will give you a heads up about their limitations and you can go find someone else to work with. Still work with them, but not in that area. If this happens with a therapist, uh, it's going to be a little bit different. There's all sorts of training and integrity issues and legal issues and lawsuits that can occur. And uh, they'll probably put this in the realm of transference and counter-transference. So you still should be able to have a decent discussion with a therapist should this happen. But the best ways to start working with this is masturbation. And don't be surprised if you have horrible fantasies, raping children, cutting bodies open, uh, slicing someone open while you come. Uh, having sex with your grandmother or your grandfather, having sex with animals. And all this is is shadow work. It's just, you don't know if it's from other lifetimes. You don't know if it's from your childhood. It doesn't mean that this is who you are. It means you're cleaning out the basement. It's very scary if you've been brought up in a religion. You're going to be sure that you're possessed by the devil or this is who you are and you deserve all the bad things that happen to you because these are the fantasies that you have and that's all crap. If you have those kind of fantasies and visions and so-called memories when you're masturbating, I would suggest you work with someone. It's heavy material for most people. Not everybody, but most people. And the same thing, even if you have a horrible fantasy of like killing children and chopping them into pieces and throwing them to alligators and you have an orgasm while that's happening, as soon as it's done, sit up and meditate for just a little bit. And what is that meditation like? It's what we teach at Light Path Healing. That you go into your body by breathing. You become very present by being in the body. And the second we're present in the body, the crown chakra opens up. And you can be taken somewhere. You can be healed. Things can happen. But you can't meditate to run away or to calm down. I mean, you can, but that's a different kind of work. So how do you turn sex that has become by rote into the sacred? Well, first of all, you're going to have to have a partner that wants to participate with you. And there is a great book uh, I would suggest that addresses the pure psychology of this. And it's a very challenging practice. And it is a very minority practice among mainstream therapy. But there's a, quite a few people trained in the practices and premises of this book called The Passionate Couple. It used to be called The Passionate Marriage, I believe or maybe the other way around. But the author is David Schnarch, S-C-H-N-A-R-C-H. And it's a book to read with your partner. And that's all I'm going to say about it. There's He gives case studies. He talks about what people actually do. And most of these are people who are older, 50s, 60s, some 70s, I think, where their sex life is just kind of in the toilet and one or both of the partners is sick of it. So this isn't about 
when sex is young and hot and you can dress it up and get toys and hang from the ceiling and you know light your genitals on fire or cover them with chocolate ice cream or something so there's actual suggestions on what to do and then there's case studies of a couple that did it and what happened and what was hard and what was amazing and what failed and how they try again and how did that work really good place to start to just kind of reignite your sex life and what it comes down to is being incredibly honest and authentic so if you're a person who hides a lot and you can't talk about your feelings you can't feel your feelings or you present a lot I'm amazing, my job is amazing, I'm great, you know, Jesus loves me, I don't drink, but of course you do, and I don't have any friends, but of course all your friends are there on Facebook and tell you how fun you are to be around, etc. Um, you probably won't be able to do what is presented in that book. You can also look up tantric sexual practices look for people who come out of the eastern tradition and you can try them with your mate now if neither one of you meditates or one of you doesn't meditate there's a really good chance that you're not going to be able to feel the energy that is released through these practices in other words again it's how you do things not what you do so for those of you who don't meditate Start with the David Schnarch book. For those of you who meditate and are energy sensitive, you can look at some of the tantric practices and try them with your mate. But your mate's got to be energy sensitive as well. Ultimately, you can have an orgasm by simply sitting in meditation, not masturbating, not thinking anything sexy, just allowing spirit to do whatever spirit needs to do whenever and all of a sudden you will find yourself connecting top and bottom meaning you have an orgasm and it shoots out your crown chakra and the energy that's released throughout your body and around your body is off the charts but I will give you a heads up about that which is it can ruin you regarding what I call muggle sex for those of you who have read Harry Potter, muggles are non-magical beings. So if you start to have cosmic sex with yourself and spirit, cosmic sex even with a partner, it will ruin you for having normal sex. You can do it. Um, you can say, well, that's the price I'll pay. I love this person and I want to be with them. And sex is eh, and that's okay. And you can maybe cope with it by, you know, I hear people say, I'm great in bed. We have all these toys. Well, to me, if you need toys, I don't know how great your sex life is, but if that's your way to make it great, I support that. But if your sex life, to me, is great, it's energy every single time. It'll be different energy every single time, just like the way we do meditation at Life Path Healings. We sit, there's no bells and whistles, it looks so boring, and yet galaxies appear and quantum shifts happen, and it's, it's just off the chart, and all we do is just sit there and become very, very receptive to what's coming in. Well, the same thing with, we can call it cosmic sex. You sit with somebody, you look at them, you don't look at them, you touch fingers, 
and an energy chain starts. And sometimes you might have cosmic sex and you're screaming and healing rage and anger and your partner isn't, but you're still both going to have an energy experience that's off the freaking charts. Sometimes you might start crying, your partner, and you might both cry. One may cry and the other may be processing anger. In other words, it is infinite combination of what energies will be touched, released, stimulated, revealed, healed, elevated, and it will be up to you how far you're willing to go with that. And it will be very, very simple because energy is very simple. People meet my teacher and say, I've you know, never felt energy like that. And what do they do? They looked at his hands or they sat in front of him. That's it. No talking in tongues, no green foam coming out of his mouth, nothing. But you had to be trusting enough to allow yourself to experience that as well. The bottom line is, don't be ashamed of what comes up around sex and sexuality. It's all related to past lives, current lives, and the energy running through your body. It's one end of the giant electric cord that runs through your body. It's one end of the flow of the ocean or the river that lives inside of you. And don't attach a story to the energies that run through you and the emotions that run through you when you're working with sexual energies. It's, that's different than making up a romance story and we're going to get married, etc. This is something else. This is that show me, teach me, help me, thank you, path. I hope this helps. I will keep trying to address questions. Please keep sending questions. You can go to my website and email me. You can text me. You can call, though getting it in writing makes it a little bit easier for me. And please remember that there are many ways to heal and grow and many ways to have a spiritual practice. So find the ways that work for you. And if it's life path healings, I'm thrilled. I'm so happy. And if it's not, please understand that's a fine decision to make. So find your way, trial and error, be humble. What Brene Brown says, be courageous, awkward, brave, and something else, vulnerable. Awkward, brave, and vulnerable. You could add to that clumsy trial and error. <laughs> Give it a shot. See what happens. Start doing your work. You don't have to grind through it. There's no rush. And you may do some reading and stuff and decide, you know what? I don't want to touch this house of cards because once I do, everything's going to fall down. I do that sometimes with healing and people say, what should I do about my body? And I'm like, you're 60 and, you know, you're not organic and you've been taking drugs and you drink and you use chemicals all the time. Better for you to go with Western medicine at this point. It's not worth what it will take to clean you up. And they can be cleaned up energetically, but you're going to have to spend money on that to do that. 
and then follow that up with a lifestyle change. And sometimes it's just not worth it, and that's okay. Hope to see you at Life Path Healings. Journey on.